Happy Mother's Day to all you dark and devious mamas out there. I hope you're having a splendid weekend. And it's time to listen to another episode of Dark and Devious. everybody as chris said happy mother's day we are recording this on mother's day morning um so yes, hope- i've got uh pineapple mimosa in hand ready for this <laughs> episode yeah um i've never had a pineapple mimosa um, i've just had your classic one um i'm i'm boring i just i have coffee today with me <laughs> Um, but speaking of drinks and Mother's Day, I called my mom yesterday because I knew we were recording today and I didn't know like if my siblings had anything planned for her for today. Um, so I took the time yesterday to talk to her and I found out that, um, she had her very first margarita, uh, ever and she's in her, uh, I won't say your age, mom, um, but she's uh, she's well lived, and she had her very first margarita this past Wednesday on Cinco de Mayo. I think that's crazy that you could go your whole life without having a margarita at all, like nowhere, not at a restaurant or something. And like, if, if I mean, some people don't drink for religion, but you know, there's virgin, right? Virgin. Yeah, you can just get the flavor. Uh huh. Yeah, so I told her um, my favorite go-to store-bought pre-made one, which is Jose Cuervo Light Margaritas. Um, (laughs) And then I also was like sending her recipes. I was like, you got to try this drink. You got to try that one. Stay away from this one because I know you won't like it. (laughs) Um, And I'm really excited to make her a Moscow Mule sometime. That is the good son. (laughs) <laughs> good son that brings the booze <laughs> and is looking out for her to like yes you'll like this one and you won't like this one mm-hmm. but, but Moscow meals are delicious I feel they like are. also I feel like I know people of a certain age really seem to appreciate ginger <laughs> and you get that in a Moscow mule and I think I think she's gonna love it Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my husband doesn't drink, um, but he loves ginger beers, and they're non-alcoholic. Yeah, there we go. So, I mean, Perfect. I'm just going to steal one of his ginger beers, throw in some gin, call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's nice. Yeah, that sounds delicious. And it makes me glad that I've got <laughs> beverage right now. Uh-huh. Um, are you, did you plan to see or talk to your mom at all today? Oh yeah. Um, so since I've been uh, working this weekend, I stopped by and had dinner with her on Friday night. We had kebabs and potato salad on, and 
oh, it was so, so good. I, that was like one of the things that growing up, I always loved it when we get kebabs because they, we would make them on the grill and they were just perfect every time. It's, they're, they're so easy and oh, they're, they're always perfect. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I dropped off. I'd gotten her a, a nice flowering plant and I picked up a book for her at the bookstore. And, and then I also got her a little bit of cheesecake for dessert. So I figured, you know, cover all, all facets and take full advantage of both my jobs and, and mom will be happy. So yeah, we had a little early and that's the thing. It's like mother's day is just an arbitrary day on the calendar. Like celebrate early, celebrate late. If you have to just tell your mom, you love her. <laughs> yeah. That's how I feel about like mother's day, father's day, birthdays. Like, you know, a lot of people, and I'm not, casting judgment on anyone but um a lot of people you know they'll they'll call on the birthday they'll call on the hallmark holiday yeah um but i'm like reach out all year long you know it doesn't have to be a special day to pick up the phone and call someone that you love and check in on them right um, i think that's that's very true mm -hmm. well it is the morning time here, and I would like to say top of the morning to Ireland. Uh, I discovered that we have uh, a listener in Ireland. So, hey there. Thanks. Thanks for coming in all the way from over there. Yes. And I'm glad that we both resisted the urge to do an Irish accent, because if we did, they would probably never want to listen to us ever again. <laughs> I mean, I we gained our Australia listener and we lost them <laughs> in the course of one episode. Uh, no, actually, I don't know if they're gone, but yeah. Yeah. Hopefully they've come back. <laughs> I do have um, a phrase that I'm actually really good with an Irish accent. I won't do it on air. Um, What's, do you want to like say the phrase in just an American accent? So I know what it is. No. No, okay. All right. Because <laughs> I don't want to be offensive. <laughs> it's not the accent that's offensive. It's the content. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh boy. Uh that would be that would be like if we had uh um like a like a Patreon exclusive thing, like hear Patrick say really terrible things. <laughs> uh, that's your bonus content. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh man, we could, I mean, that can be a whole, whole series in itself because <laughs> my mind is a gutter. <laughs> um, well, um, speaking of uh, a potential Patreon, um, don't forget to check us out on our social medias. Um, and thank you again to our donors. We appreciate it very much. Yes. Um, it's I know thank we got a very nice message from Amanda from last week's episode, who was very excited that we covered a case that she had recommended. And yeah, I was just really happy that she was so happy with it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and 
So thanks, Amanda. Um, thank you. I want to give a shout out to my dearest, dearest friend, Ariel. Um, she left a wonderful review on Apple podcast app. Um, and you know, it's those, it's those reviews that get us noticed and get us going up the chart. So thanks everyone who has liked, rated, reviewed, and or supported us. Yes. We have some, some great starting followers. <laughs> we sure do. We love our little deviants. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I really do like that as, uh, as the name of our fan base. I, mm-hmm. I'm into it. Me too. Um, well, do you have anything else to cover today? Uh, nothing else, really. I know you said you had a great big case for us, and I want to I wanna get right to it. So if you don't have anything else, I'm, I'm ready for this, this big case you are talking about. All right. Well, we will get into it right after this. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Um, so as Chris... Um, alluded earlier. Um, I do have a pretty big case today. Um, not so much as in like, it's like, wow, punch you in the face big, but more or less, um, there's just a lot of details. Um, and this, I, I almost wrote to Chris yesterday and I almost said like, hey, can we do a two-parter? Just because- oh, yeah. I didn't want to have to like condense it any more than I already was. Um, but you know, here we are. So, <laughs> so you're content with doing just it all in one episode. It'll just be maybe a little bit longer. Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm cool with it. Um, so I recently, um, all of last week I was in Austin, Texas And while in Austin, I thought, what's more appropriate than to do a case from where I am, do some research. And I was like, I was so, so stupid of of me not to remember that one of the cold cases that has stuck with me is from Austin, Texas. Ooh. So when you are already aware of. Yes, I've known about this case for a while. Um, I followed it for a bit. Um, it's gone a little, like I said, it's cold, very, very cold right now. Um, and it is the 1991 yogurt shop murders. Oh, now I have not heard of this. So I'm, I'm ready for to be informed. Okay. Um, all right. Well, without further ado, here we go. So, um, for those of you that, uh, aren't too familiar with Austin, Austin is a large city in central Texas. It's about 80 miles northeast of San Antonio and 200 miles south of Dallas, um, with a population that currently lingers around 1 million people. And that's the capital of Texas, right? Yes. Um, So even though Austin has been a large city for some time now, in the early 1990s, it didn't feel like it. To many, Austin was almost like its own little bubble inside of Texas. It's a surprising liberal city in a traditional conservative state. And Austin has a reputation for being home to the area's most progressive voices, which made sense to some uh, because after all, it is the state's capital, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. 
For many Texans, Austin was a nice and quiet place to live where you could raise a family and didn't have to worry about the downside of large cities, um, namely violent crime, which was unheard of in parts of Austin. On the evening of December 6, 1991, Austin Police Sergeant John Jones Jr. signed onto duty, well aware that he was the only homicide detective on duty that evening. He was settling in for what appeared to be a quiet night when a call came in over his police radio. An Austin Police Department officer had called into dispatch that evening, just before midnight informing them that a fire appeared to be coming from a frozen yogurt shop in northwestern Austin. Fire crews would arrive at the scene a short time later to extinguish the blaze, but inside they would make a heinous discovery. The bodies of four teenage girls who had been shot execution style and then intentionally set on fire. And Whoa. this is the that, story. This is heavy. This is wild already. Mm-hmm. It is wild. Before we get into the details about the murders, I think it would be best to get a sense of who these young ladies were. Jennifer Ann Harbison was born on May 9th, 1974 to Mike and Barbara Harbison. She would be followed just a couple years later by a younger sister named Sarah Louise, who was born on October 28th, 1976. For the first few years of the girls' lives, they lived with their parents in the region of Texarkana, which is like along the Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas border, hence its name Texarkana. But when the girls were young, their mother separated from their father and relocated to Austin. In Austin, their mother would begin a new life for herself and eventually meet Frank Sirachi. Uh, the two would eventually become romantically involved uh, and getting married with the girls gaining a stepfather. Jennifer and Sarah would grow up in their mother and stepfather's home in the suburbs on the northern side of town. Jennifer was the first to attend Lanier High School, where she was well-liked by all of her teachers and staff members, including her geography teacher, Ed Gifford, who later wrote about her she brought joy into the classroom. She was more excited about life than any kid I've ever known. She was one of the best that Lanier has ever had. Jennifer was in her senior year at Lanier High School when her younger sister, Sarah, managed to join her as a freshman, where she excelled not only as a student, but as an athlete as well. Lanier principal Paul Turner later said about Sarah, she had already established herself as assertive and enthusiastic a vital member of the freshman class. She was a leader, clearly a kid who was going to make a mark on the place. While Sarah was just beginning her high school career, Jennifer was preparing for what laid beyond. Even though her mother wanted her to fully enjoy her teenage years, Jennifer wanted to make some money for herself so that she could fully prepare for college. Jennifer first worked at Albertson's grocery store nearby but then took a job at an, I can't believe it's yogurt, frozen yogurt shop. That's really a clever name. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a spin on, I can't believe it's not butter. Right. Although it's like, can they copyright that? I mean, there's no word not because it's, I can't believe it's yogurt. 
okay then it's a totally different thing all right <laughs> yeah this holds up yep um so she got this job at the yogurt shop uh from the recommendation of her best friend eliza so eliza hope was also one of the victims born eliza hope thomas um, on May 16th, 1974, to her parents, James and Maria Thomas. Like Jennifer and Sarah, Eliza would grow up in the Austin region and also would have a single system sister named Sonora. In 1981, when Eliza was just seven or eight years old, her parents separated and eventually filed for divorce. The two sisters would split time between their parents. And in December of 1991, Eliza was staying with her mother while Sonora was staying with their father, which was conveniently just a few blocks away from the yogurt shop that Eliza worked at. Like the Harbison sisters, Eliza Thomas also attended Lanier High School. She loved working with and caring for animals and planned to become a veterinarian after high school. Eliza's father would later state that she had always been nuts about animals and in the past had kept crayfish and rats in her bedroom. That's that's honestly, like, adorable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the fact that it's not, like, the cutest, cuddliest creatures. Like, she wanted a crayfish. She wanted a rat. <laughs> I know. It just shows, like, how much she just loved animals. Like, Yeah. All, all God's creatures. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, So it was Eliza's involvement in FFA that brought her close to the oldest Harbison sister, Jennifer, who was in the same grade Eliza and also very active in the FFA club. What is FFA? Is that? Um, So it used to stand for Future Farmers of America. It no longer stands for that because there's like urban FFA chapters. Um, So it's like, you know, not every kid in FFA is going to be a future farmer. Um, gotcha. They might just have a general interest in. Right. I was an FFA all through all through high school. Um, and it was a good experience. I enjoyed it. So it's kind of like a 4-H type thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a 4-H for high schools. Oh, cool. So like I said, the two became fast friends and they were both nominated for FFA Queen in their senior year. <laughs> we did not have <laughs> FFA Queen in my chapter, but I guess it's a thing. Eliza had managed to secure a job at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop in the Hillside Center strip mall. She'd been working there for four months when she convinced Jennifer to apply as well. The yogurt shop was one of the few jobs that allowed teenagers to have a real responsibility, and they were even able to work unsupervised. The two generally worked together on the weekends when they were allowed to gossip for hours oftentimes closing the shop by themselves. That's kind of scary for like teenagers to actually be closing by themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, um, you know, like those big uh, truck stops, like in the middle of nowhere along the highways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a busboy and eventually a waiter at one um, in the middle of nowhere growing up. And in high school, I remember um, some nights it would be, there would always be an adult, but it would be like five high schoolers and one adult at the end of the night. Um, so we weren't alone. Um, 
but See, like just that whole like having one more like responsible older person just makes it feel like a little less scary right yeah um so the fourth of the teenage victors was amy lee ayers or ayers i'm gonna say ayers Amy was born on January 31st, 1978 to Robert and Pam Ayers. She was the second child of the family following her older brother, Sean. Growing up in Texas, Amy became a huge country music fan who would later be remembered for having a crush on country music icon, George Strait. Like Eliza, she also was an animal lover who adored cats, especially. Having grown up on a ranch, Amy had become used to the farming culture early on and had been riding horses since the age of three. When asked whether she was part cowgirl, Amy's father, Robert, responded that she wasn't. Amy was all cowgirl. <laughs> that's, even, that's adorable. Uh-huh. Even though she was the youngest of the other girls, Amy became fast friends with Jennifer, Eliza, and Sarah, who once again, they were all in the same FFA chapter. Now, Amy didn't attend Lanier High School, but attended Burnett Middle School, and the two shared an FFA chapter. She was planning to continue involvement in the coming years as she moved from middle school to Lanier High. Through her involvement in FFA chapter, Amy became best friends with Sarah Harbison, who was Jennifer's little sister. They didn't get to see much of each other because they attended separate schools. Around the first weekend of, De of December, the two plan on having a sleepover where they get to catch up on each other's lives from the past few weeks. I love that. I mean, I would do that now with my friends. If, <laughs> adult slumber party. <laughs> right, like, let's just have some, we'll have like popcorn, we'll watch a movie or a TV show and we'll just camp out in the living room. Sounds nice. Um, so, unfortunately, this weekend is the weekend of the tragic event. Damn it. Couldn't they have scheduled it a week earlier? Mm-hmm. So there are the four teenage girls that would horrifyingly meet their fates on December 6, 1991. Now, December 6, 1991 was a particularly gray day. It was the second to last Friday of the school semester and kids all over Austin were already preparing for their upcoming winter break. After leaving school that afternoon, 17-year-old Jennifer Harbison stopped by the apartment where her high school boyfriend, Sammy Buchanan, lived. Sammy had not been at school that day due to him having attended a family member's funeral. Oh, that's sad. Mm -hmm. And the two would hang out for a few hours at the apartment. Jennifer then returned home around 7 p.m. to pick up her work clothes and then started heading to work. First, though, she had to pick up Sarah's best friend, Amy Ayers, and drop both Sarah and Amy off at the mall just down the road from the yogurt shop. 15-year-old Sarah and 13-year-old Amy would end up spending the evening at the North Cross Mall, which is half a mile away from where Jennifer was working. This night was actually the very first time that either Sarah or Amy had been able to go to the mall by themselves. 
Oh my gosh. And it's also, I and like I remember that time period of like the '90s where like you could spend a whole day at the mall and it would just be the best time ever. Like the mall used to be the hangout spot, mm -hmm. and now malls are dying all over America, which is really sad. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's where the term mall rat came from because it just used to be like littered with teenagers. Yep, and um, this Friday night where the girls were allowed to go to the mall by themselves was um, the same night that they were planning on having their sleepover at Sarah's house where they would get a ride back with Jennifer when she finished work. So the same night, uh, best friends Jennifer Harbison and Eliza Thomas, both 17 years old, were working the closing shift at I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. Eliza started her shift at seven and Jennifer started at eight. And the two would be responsible for closing by themselves. That's so scary. Mm -hmm. Over the next several hours, multiple customers would come and go from the yogurt shop leaving behind scattered breadcrumbs of witness sightings that police would later have to compile. Between 8.15 and 8.30, a woman named Lucella dropped by the yogurt shop, picking up some frozen yogurt for her family. She would later recall seeing two teenage boys sitting in a booth near the front door, who were the only other customers in the shop at the time. They seemed to be fixated on an object that was in the middle of their table, um, but the object was concealed in a bag. Um, it could have it could have been anything, you know. It could be something terrifying or completely harmless, as like, you know, a new video game they just picked up. Um, she said that both the teenage boys were regular looking, but in this affluent corner of town, they just appeared out of place. Hmm. She later described them as having long, unkempt hair and appearing to be of Hispanic origins, although she couldn't be sure. Uh, they were they were into the 90s grunge look, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Yep. The whole Kurt Cobain. Yes. <laughs> uh, and around nine o'clock, Jennifer took a short break and drove down the street to pick up Sarah and Amy from the Northcrest Mall which was closing. She brought them back to the yogurt shop and then Sarah and Amy walked down a few doors to a nearby pizza shop where they bought a pizza and brought it back to enjoy at the yogurt shop. At approximately 9.30, Eliza's mother, Maria Thomas, dropped by the yogurt shop as she and Jennifer parents regularly did during their weekend work shifts. She stayed there for some minutes, bought some yogurt, and then left, believing everything was fine. There were no other customers in the store at the time, and nothing seemed to be out of the ordinary. At some point between 9.30 and 10, a former military policeman and owner of a security firm named Daryl Croft came by. Inside the yogurt shop, Croft noticed two separate young couples as well as an individual young man who appeared to be alone. Croft said the man was fidgety, 
especially when he spoke while ordering a single can of soda, which he then took with him towards the bathrooms in the back of the store. Daryl Croft claims he never saw that man leave by the time he himself left. Speaking to police at a later date, Daryl would be unable to provide much information about this young man or identify him in any kind of photo lineup. But he did claim that the young man was wearing a green jacket, which looked like something that he had picked up from a military surplus store. This is why now whenever I go into like, uh, you know, like if I was going into a restaurant or, or, or a fast food place or something, all of a sudden I'm like, let me take down as many mental details as possible about everyone around me, just in case one of them happens to commit a crime here. Right. <laughs> um, that's called being smart and also being paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> okay so you're rubbing off on me <laughs> i'm i mean who's to say that i don't check behind the shower curtain every day when i get home from work i mean <laughs> true story okay <laughs> now whether you do so like with a baseball bat in hand is another story <laughs> okay so between 10 and 11 which while doing research on this, I was like, what yogurt shop is open till 11 p.m.? Right? Um, I mean, do they also serve beer or something? Is it boozy yogurt? <laughs> or, or, you know what, they're, um, gosh, I forget if it's, I think it might have been in Washington, D.C. There was like, uh, it's, or, or no, it was in New York. There's uh, like an all night, cookie place I think where you can literally get cookies delivered to you at all hours of the night and because it's like the only place that will do that it's like a really specialized business which is kind of cool because like oh like you get home and you're you know maybe you're a little toasty maybe you're a little uh, <laughs> maybe you're a little tipsy and you know what sounds really good is like fresh warm cookies mm. and and, or, you know, you got the munchies and then they will provide at any hour of the day. Maybe it's something like, maybe that's the kind of business idea that they had in mind. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's the early nineties. So. I mean, there's not, not a lot else to do. Right. Um, yeah. So in between 10 and 11, multiple witnesses would come into the shop uh, and the final sale was registered at 1042 to a couple that had just gotten out of a late night movie. Okay, oh. that's legit. Like, that's cute. Okay, we just had, saw a movie. Like, let's let's get some frozen yogurt after the movie. Yeah, it's cute. Date night. So while purchasing their yogurt, the couple would report seeing a few individuals who they believed to be men, and they were sitting at the table closest to the cash register. Both were wearing jackets or thick sweatshirts, which obscured their faces. But one appeared to be bigger and more muscular, while the other was smaller with thin features. Unfortunately, the couple would not get a great look at the pair and had little reason to believe that they needed to. The yogurt shop was scheduled to close at 11, and by the time that these two witnesses left at approximately 1047, one of the teenage employees had already started to wipe down tables and place chairs on top of them. 
It would later be reported that the two chairs these mysterious men were sitting at would be the only chairs that remained on the floor. Ooh, that is an interesting detail. Mm-hmm. While Jennifer and Eliza were the only teens actually employed and working, it is believed that Sarah and Amy were helping out so that they could leave on time. The two were going to catch a ride with Jennifer anyhow, and they likely wanted to get on with their sleepover. Witnesses did not recall seeing Sarah and Amy out in the lobby during the last half hour or so, but it was believed that they might have moved to the back of the store to begin cleaning up there. Also, that's where their pizza box would later be found, indicating they had relocated to the back kitchen for at least a little while. As the clock continued to creep closer to midnight, the teen's parents had no reason to suspect that anything had happened to them. This was because the four girls were all in the same FFA chapter, and they regularly stopped by the school's off-campus site to say goodnight to the animals that they were raising. Oh, that is so adorable. I know. Eliza was raising a pig while the Harbison sisters were raising baby lambs. The teens dropped by at least twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. And it was just thought by the teens' parents that they might have dropped by the animal pens to care for them before heading home. What, like, adorable, responsible young women they are for, like, oh, like, not only am I, like, preparing for my future and trying to uh, make money so I'm ready for college, but I'm also caring for baby animals. Like, like it. the only other thing that you could add to make it even more sweet is if they were, like, also helping elderly people cross the street at the same time. Yeah, and, like, I mean, I mean, I grew up on a farm, and I would just like to have baby animals and stuff, but actually to, like, you know, they were at my home. I can go see them anytime I want. And for these girls to go out of their way after working a closing shift to, you know, go say goodnight to to some baby lambs and piglet is <laughs> it's just really sweet. And yeah. I hate that they seem like they were such nice people. Just before midnight, Tony Gray, a young police officer with the APD, uh, which is the Austin Police Department. I'm going to refer to it as the APD from here on out. Um, he was patrolling Northwest Austin on the lookout for uh, DWIs. While patrolling, he happened upon the Hillside Center strip mall that I can't believe it's yogurt was located in. Immediately, he noticed that smoke was coming from the yogurt shop. And he called into dispatch at 7, or excuse me, at 11.47. Even though it was believed that this might be a simple kitchen fire, the call sparked immediate response, as not much else was going on in Austin that Friday evening. Fire crews arrived at the location a short time later, with Renee Garza being one of the firefighters on duty that weekend. Renee later testified to showing up at the scene and noticing that all the lights of the yogurt shop were off with a close sign facing outward. 
As he approached the front door, though, he could see the blaze burning inside, with black smoke filling the interior. As Renee and his fellow firemen prepared to move in, they popped open the front door with a crowbar. They began battling the flames, which, thankfully, had been confided to a small enough location. Firefighters regarded the incident as a two-alarm fire, meaning that it was moderate enough to warrant a response, but wasn't intense enough to begin spiraling out of control. Within a couple of minutes, the firefighters had started to quell the fire with water and began to gain more visibility towards the back of the store. As the flames started to dwindle, Renee's partner, David DeVoe, grabbed him and pointed towards an object in the back of the yogurt shop, asking, is that a foot? It was then that a horrifying discovery would be made, which would change not only the lives of everyone involved, but the city of Austin itself. Police officers at the scene made the call into authorities, eventually calling in Sergeant John Jones. Even though the original call that came into dispatchers informed them that two bodies had been found, that quickly would be amended to three bodies. And by the time Sergeant Jones arrived at the scene, four bodies. Gosh, that's just horrifying to think of. Like, it's bad enough responding to a, a regular fire, but then to realize that there's not one, not two, not three, but four people who were dead in that burning building. Mm-hmm. That's that's and like, like they said, it was a two alarm fire. So it wasn't like crazy out of control. Right. So why should there be people who are deceased? Yeah. you. It's, it's something that I'm sure right away caused a lot of uh, alarm and suspicion. Yeah. So, All four bodies were discovered near the back door with three of them stacked on top of one another and then set on fire. The fourth had been found just a few feet away, separated for unknown reasons. Hmm. Even though the four bodies had been burned severely, it was clear that all four had been young women. Before being burned, they had been forced to undress and then bound and gagged with their own clothing next being shot in the head execution style. It was unknown if all had been dead at the time they were set on fire, but that was the belief at the crime scene. Sergeant Jones, who had been the only homicide detective duty on that evening, was the first there, and it was now his case to handle. The victims would be identified as four teenage girls that had been inside the yogurt shop that evening. Jennifer and Sarah Harbison, Eliza Thomas, and Amy Ayers. Police were able to identify Jennifer and Eliza through their vehicles in the yogurt shop parking lot, and then Sarah and Amy through simple process of elimination. Over the next couple of days, it would be reported in the press that the four victims had been teenage girls, which undoubtedly added to the terrifying nature of the crime. Everyone saw their loved ones in the victims their daughters, sisters, classmates, or even themselves. This crime was shocking to everyone in the area, but was especially shocking to the members of the Austin Police Department, who had investigated similar crimes in the past, but nothing quite like this. 
sounds like a very, uh, very much like our last week's case. I'm, you know, that the reason why everybody was extra shocked about Drew Shadeen is because like she was the, the girl who could have been their sister, their daughter, their friend. And it sounds like this is the same case with these young women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like similar with Drew Shadeen um, in that area and this area of Austin, like mm-hmm. murder just doesn't happen. Yeah, that this is not something that is an everyday occurrence. So when it does happen, it's extra terrifying because it's, it, it, the way that it sounds like Austin in that time period would have been like, oh yeah, like people, people know each other here. Like no one would, no one would commit such a crime. Like yeah, we're comfortable here. We all, like everybody knows everybody in, in a way. Mm-hmm. So at the crime scene, it was quickly discovered that the back door to the yogurt shop had been left unlocked. That was likely how the culprit or culprits had made their getaway since the front door had been locked and the keys later found inside. Police would not say whether or not the register had been tampered with or how, but it was later confirmed that a robbery had taken place. Following an audit, it was determined that roughly $540 had been stolen from the yogurt shop, most of which came from the cash register. What, like... um... What a pathetic sum of money for for their lives. I know. I like, was if that is indeed the case, the motivation for the crime for a few hundred dollars, these promising young women were murdered. That is just insane. I just know. Insane. Like my jaw dropped when I saw that it was only $540. Right. It's astounding. The last transaction in the register's log had come in at 11.03 p.m., three minutes after the shop was supposedly been closed, and 13 minutes after the front doors were usually locked. This transaction was a no-sale, which indicated that the transaction had either been canceled or the no-sale button had been pushed to simply open the registered drawer. Um, which is exactly what you would press if you were being robbed. Exactly. Mm -hmm. A full-scale arson investigation would take place that weekend, which hoped to determine when exactly the fire had been started and how. It was reported that the fire had been started in the kitchen area, which is where the girls' bodies had been found. Arson investigator Melvin Stahl was tasked with investigating the fire itself, and would state in his official report that the fire had been started approximately at 11.42 p.m., more than 40 minutes after the store was supposed to have been closed, and exactly 39 minutes after the no sale had been recorded on the cash register. This implied that the culprit or culprits had remained in the building for about an hour before starting the fire that would end up destroying most of the crime scene. That is just really weird. You'd think if it was a simple robbery, you just want to get out of there as quickly as possible. But obviously they wanted something else Mm -hmm. or they wanted to make sure that the witnesses would never be able to identify them. Exactly. It would be reported that the fire had been burning so intensely and so hot 
that one of the victim's teeth had started to burn away. It would also be reported that the victim's bodies had started to melt onto the floor, which makes it so miraculous that the firefighters were able to um, extinguish it so quickly. The fire had even managed to melt some of the victim's jewelries, as well as containers of cleaning supplies and paint cans in the back storage room. It would later be theorized that styrofoam cups full of lighter fluid had been placed on or near the bodies, which helped light the fire and increase the spread of flames. Styrofoam itself is incredibly flammable. And when set on fire, it would create an almost napalm-like substance, which would burn incredibly hot and stick like tar to whatever it was placed on. That's horrifying. That makes me think of those those styrofoam coolers from the 90s. Like, they were just potential napalm <laughs> at every barbecue. Uh, oh my gosh, that's so true. Yeah. <laughs> Who thought that was a good idea? <laughs> Thank God those aren't very, I don't think they're very popular anymore if they even make them. No, and I, I think they probably would have made styrofoam more safe by now. God, I hope so. In addition to lighting a fire to destroy whatever physical evidence had been left behind, police learned that the culprit or culprits had done whatever they could to contaminate the crime scene. On the bodies of the four murdered teenagers, uh, the responsible parties had stacked a large number of paper cups and bowls from the yogurt shop. Um, In addition to that, police discovered that chocolate syrup, uh, frozen yogurt, ice cream spoons had been placed on or around the bodies. Um, It was theorized that this might have been some kind of sick joke by the killer. That does sound like a sick joke. Mm -hmm. I mean, Otherwise, it's like, are they just hoping that like, oh, the more crap you throw onto the the crime scene, the harder it'll be to determine what is evidence and what is just trash. Like, mm-hmm. and then like, I mean, if they're literally putting yog- like frozen yogurt on them, like I assume that like as it melts, then that might contaminate any kind of DNA evidence or or any like a fingerprint or something. Exactly. So if it was just like a sick prank, that makes me think like teenage bullcrap. Um, where if it was more so to destroy evidence, it makes me think that this person is very smart. Yeah. And it could be either way. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of just leaves you right where you started with no real good place to go with where to start looking for suspects right it was publicly theorized that more than one culprit had been involved in the crime additionally it was not believed that the offenders had forced it away inside meaning they had likely been inside the yogurt shop near its closing time which would narrow in a timeline for investigators Police began reaching out to people in the area that might have seen or heard something on the night of December 6th. They were also hoping that those that had been in the yogurt shop in the hours before would come forward as they might have encountered the offenders and could provide valuable information. In the days after the crime, Bryce Foods, 
the company that owned the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt chain, put together a $25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest or conviction of those that had committed this heinous crime. The owners would even meet with the victim's families that weekend, hoping to do whatever they could to support them. Oh, that's nice. By the following Monday, word had spread throughout the area and Lanier High School, which was attended by three out of the four victims. Students that had been excited about winter break just days prior now had to adjust to life without three of their peers, all of whom had been lost in a single vicious and unexplainable act. Even though Burnett Middle School was less heavily impacted, the loss of 13-year-old Amy Ayers left a gaping hole in the hearts of her friends and teachers, who just couldn't believe that she was gone. One of Amy's friends, Terry Becker, told reporters with the Austin American Statesman that she hadn't believed the news, and she went to the yogurt shop that following Saturday, only to be greeted by a bustling crime scene. In the days after the murders, police were flooded with tips from the public. Of those tips, police decided to narrow in on people that had been in the yogurt shop in the hours before the crime itself took place. As police began to extend their search for witnesses, they began to learn more about what had happened the night the four girls perished. After several days, the Tarrant County Medical Examiner's Office finished up their autopsy and released their findings to investigators. It was revealed that the three bodies were burned beyond recognition. These were the three bodies that had been stacked on top of one another, which were believed to be the three oldest victims, Jennifer and Sarah Harbison, as well as Eliza Thomas. Even though their bodies had burned, been burned severely, medical examiners were able to identify them through their dental records. In their findings, it was also revealed that the youngest victim, Amy Ayers, had been the victim found several feet away from the others. And it is likely that she had been alive at the time the firefighters arrived at the scene. Oh, that's terrifying. That's so much worse. Mm -hmm. they, so she had been shot in the head and lit on fire and was still alive. It was widely speculated that the reason why she was not stacked with the other girls is because she was attempting to crawl away as she was facing the back door. God. I mean, could you imagine if she had managed to get away, like, that would change the whole dynamic of the whole case. And, right. Gosh, that poor girl. Mm -hmm. And to add even more to her horrific experience, as mentioned, each of the girls have been shot in the head execution style. But Amy Ayers, the one who was believed to still be alive, was actually shot twice in the head. Oh, my God. And more particularly, um, the bullet wounds in her skull were that of a different caliber weapon than the others. Okay, this just keeps getting weirder. So that makes people believe even more that there are two separate individuals. So 
even though the original police report indicated that this was simply a robbery murder with no sexual component, it is actually believed that at least one of the victims had been assaulted before the murders. And unfortunately, it is believed to be the youngest victim, Amy Ayers, who was found away trying to crawl to safety. Wow. That you can just, um, just imagine like the will to live still being in her. I know. That is the fact that she tried to get away. It's uh, an incredible testament to her spirit. And it's so, so sad that she didn't get a chance to make it even. I mean, because there's a chance that she could have gotten out of there, but that also would have been a very traumatic life afterwards. I, the amount of strength that she had to just uh-huh. try to keep going is, I don't have a word for it. Yeah. No, it's just, it's just terrible. So a lot of this information from the autopsies were held close to chest and they weren't released to the public until years later when the case had already gone cold. During the investigations, though, police were wondering if perhaps this crime was connected to others. Investigators in Austin reached out to officials in La Cruces, New Mexico, where a similar crime occurred at a bowling alley in the year prior, 1990. Weird. Yeah, and it's very, very... um, similar. The brutal shooting deaths of multiple victims who've been shot in the head execution style and left for dead, just like the yogurt case. The offenders had started a fire to cover up the crime by destroying any evidence. And the culprits made off with cash stolen from the bowling alley's cash registers. And just like the yogurt shop murders, that case also remains unsolved to this day. That's spooky. And the fact that, I mean, granted New Mexico and Austin, like that's a lot of space in between, but not an unusual amount. I mean, it's both kind of American Southwest. Uh, It's totally possible that there could be the same people responsible for both. Yeah. Or a copycat. True. In the later half of December, police released a profile of the potential killers, which had been created with the help of the FBI. This profile, which explored who the potential culprits might have been, also explained whether or not the public was at risk for any kind of similar crimes that would follow. According to the profile, The people responsible for this crime did not plan it out, but they were familiar with the area. That's due to um, their quick getaway and their ability to successfully flee from the crime scene without alerting the police that were nearby. It was likely the offenders had a history of other fire-related crimes, at times using arson to cover up other violent acts. They undoubtedly had a history of starting fires and probably had a criminal record reflecting that. 
Throughout the 90s, many people of interest were looked into for the murder of the four teenage girls. Now, I honestly could do a whole episode just on the vast amount of uh, potential killers because the list was like bonkers long. But for simplicity, I'm going to cover the most highly believed and the most talked about potential suspects. So first, I will talk about Kenneth Allen McDuck. Kenneth was a Texas serial killer suspected of at least 14 murders. He was convicted of murdering three teens on August 6, 1966, Robert Brand, Mark Dumman, and Edna Louise Sullivan. These killings were dubbed the broomstick murders because Edna's neck was broken with a broomstick after she was repeatedly assaulted. McDuff was sentenced to death for this, but his sentence was changed to life with possibility of parole in 1972. Due to prison overcrowding, McDuff was paroled in 1989. What? That is the worst reason to release somebody. I know. How about you release someone with an ounce of marijuana on them instead? Yeah, maybe somebody who's a non-violent criminal. Exactly. Somebody who literally murdered multiple people. Mm-hmm. It is now believed that after his release, Macduff committed many other murders, including the killing of Melissa Ann Northrup, a 22-year-old Texan in 1992. Oh, but, you know, thank goodness we got that one prisoner out of prison because it was so crowded. Uh-huh. After evading capture for years, Macduff was finally taken into custody for the murder and sent to death row. On November 17, 1998, the day of his execution, Macduff confessed to the yogurt shop murders. If he thought this was his last-minute confession was going to spare his life, he was mistaken. His execution was carried out that day as scheduled. After Macduff's death, the authorities investigated his confession, but they couldn't really say it was for sure him. After all, fingerprints and hair collected from the yogurt shop were not a direct match. Interesting. I always wonder why, like, why someone on death row would want to confess to something that they didn't do. I think, I mean, sometimes they will, you know, spare you or you get to stay alive, you know, for years following because now you have a whole new trial to go through, a whole new sentencing to go through. It's really, it's really, yeah, I guess, I guess really when you are that close to death, all you can really do is kick the can down the road a little further Mm-hmm. So and and hope to be like well we we have to keep him alive because he might have answers to questions that we have exactly. and if he dies then we'll never know the truth right but unfortunately sometimes with people who are are bad people they will just say whatever to get what they want mm-hmm. and if it's, if it's another couple years of life They'll do anything to get it. Exactly. So TBD on him. Uh, Next up is Maurice Pierce. Eight days after the murders, investigators got a tip to look into a teenager named Maurice Pierce. 
The 16-year-old was seen at the Northcrest Mall with a gun on the very same night Sarah and Amy were hanging out there before they headed to the yogurt shop. But then, then again, this is Texas. Everybody's got a gun. Yes. And it was the 90s where even more people had a gun. The gun was a 22 caliber handgun, the same speculated by the medical examiners as one of the guns used to execute the girls based on the size and shape of the bullet wounds. But when questioned, Maurice, along with his three friends that he was with at the mall, Michael Scott, Robert Springsteen, and Forrest Wellborn, nothing came of the lead. Really, one of the guys was Michael Scott? Yeah. <laughs> That's an office <laughs> restaurant for anyone who doesn't know. <laughs> I just imagine, like, all these teenagers and then, like, grown-up Michael Scott. Right. Uh, so when Maurice's gun was tested, the ballistics showed that it did not match the murder weapon. Also, just like McDuff, fingerprints and hair collected at the crime scene did not match any of the four teens. And eventually, the investigators simply had to move on. So, moving forward to 1999. Years went by with no arrest, and the case was eventually passed on to new detectives. Then, in 1999, four suspects in their 20s were taken into custody for the murders. This might sound familiar. These four men were Forrest Wellborn, Michael Scott, Robert Springsteen, and Maurice Pierce. These were the same boys that were questioned back in 1991 for killing uh, the teenagers in the yogurt shop. One of the suspects, Michael Scott, confessed to killing the girls. And oh, he was, wow. Yeah, he wasn't alone, though. Robert Springsteen also confessed to killing the girls and sexually assaulting one of them. After the confessions, police were convinced they had found their killers. The theory was that the four had planned to rob the yogurt shop. Scott, Springsteen, and Pierce entered the shop while Wellborn waited outside and served as a lookout. But then something went terribly wrong during the robbery, and all four teenage girls were killed. The authorities tried twice to indict Wellborn for the murders, but they lacked evidence to link him to the crime, so charges for him were dropped. Charges against Pierce were also dropped due to a lack of evidence, which was particularly hard for the police and the victim's families to take, as he was considered the mastermind behind the crime and questioned so many years before. Springsteen and Scott were tried separately for the yogurt shop killings, and both were found guilty of capital murder. Springsteen received the death penalty, which was possible even after the Supreme Court ruling in 1972, because the state of Texas had passed a new death penalty statute, whereas Michael Scott was sentenced to 99 years in prison. However, not long after their trials, serious concerns were raised that suggested Springsteen and Scott were innocent. Hmm. To start, there was no physical evidence linking either of them to the crime. Additionally, both men said their confessions had been coerced, and there was actually evidence to back up that claim. One of the detectives on the case was transferred 
after it was found out that he exhorted confessions in an unrelated case. Ugh. And it's, it's such it's so unfortunate when it's like bad police work just messes up the case. It's like there's no point in trying to coerce a confession out of somebody who's not guilty because it's like you're not making anybody any safer. Like exactly. If, if you if you coerce somebody who's innocent to uh, plead guilty, then then the real perpetrator is still out there and they're most likely they're going to commit another crime at some point. Yes, exactly. Um, And get this, if you think it's bad that they were just, you know, um, extorting confessions, also another police uh, agent of the Austin Police Department came forward saying that other members on the department were pointing a gun at Scott during his interrogation. That is like the worst thing you could do. I know. My goodness, like. Yeah, so roughly 15 years after the yogurt shop killings were committed, both convictions uh, for Springsteen and Scott were overturned when they found that they violated, violated their amendment right to confront their accusers. So and, and also that like that's that's not good for anybody. It's like then the families don't know what to think. They're like, oh, I finally had somebody I could direct this like these feelings towards, and now and now it's all called into question. So now it's like if they really were guilty, then they're getting off. And if they weren't guilty, then wait, what am I trying to say? So if they yeah, if they were guilty, then they're getting off because of bad police practices. But if they're not guilty, then then now it's like, I have nobody to point the blame at anymore. Right. And, you know, these families, they probably just wanted an answer and they finally had one and then that answer got ripped away. Yeah. And now it just, it's, you're back to square one. Mm-hmm. Where they're either they're either furious that people they believe killed their daughters are now released, or they're like, "Well, who is it then if it's not them?" Yeah. In two thousand eight, DNA testing was done on the evidence collected from the crime scene, and the male DNA found, um, and those did not match any any of the four men accused as well. Then Travis County District Attorney Rosemary Lemberg said even though she was sure Scott and Springsteen were responsible for the yogurt shop murder, the men would not be re-prosecuted until the unknown male connected to the DNA evidence was found. Most of the authorities still believe that they had the right four guys all along and that a fifth man must have helped perpetuate the crime, explaining away the unknown DNA evidence. But the defense attorneys for Scott and Springsteen call the fifth man theory ridiculous and stress that no one ever mentioned a fifth participant until the inconvenient DNA results came in. Mm. Which that's a valid point. That's very valid. Where like you, 
you have to go off of the evidence that you have when it's something so strong as like this DNA evidence. It's like, if, it, if it's not linked to anybody that you thought it was, then that means that there has to be somebody else involved. And that's what you have to go off of. Mm -hmm. And also that person is definitely the worst of the worst because their DNA evidence is clearly there and we know why. Right. Many people, including the victim's family members, believe the killers are actually the two yet identified customers who in the yogurt who were in the yogurt shop at closing time. The police apparently interviewed 52 customers who visited the store on the day of the murders, but two men who were witnesses placed there at closing time have never been found. Hmm. Three customers who left the store just before closing said on their way out that they noticed the two men sitting in a booth, not looking like they're leaving anytime soon. At least one of the customers saw Jennifer lock up the front door, put up the close sign in order to ensure no more customers would enter while they wrapped up their shift. The two men in the booth remained behind after all the other witnesses had left. Witnesses described the person of interest as follows. One has lighter hair, maybe like a dirty blonde, and is about five foot six in his late 20s, early 30s. The other is described as a bigger man wearing um, a puffy coat. One was green and like army fatigue kind of colored jacket. The other had a black jacket. To this day, neither of these men had been identified. And that goes hand in hand with that one couple that came in after the movie mm -hmm. that said they saw two men sitting there and they, where those men were sitting were the only chairs that weren't stacked up. Which means so they, they were there to the very end. Yeah, they lingered until it was like the girls would say, you have to leave. We are closed. Mm -hmm. In ah. the end, it is questionable if robbery was ever the real motive in this case. Given the small amount of money taken and the extreme level of violence, it is hard to imagine that these murders were merely the result of a robbery gone bad. The key to solving this case potentially rests with linking the DNA evidence found at the scene to the two male customers seen by witnesses lingering in the yogurt shop, which unfortunately is like waiting for paint to dry in the rain. The victim's loved ones continue to hold out hope that justice can be found as the 30th anniversary of this tragic crime quickly approaches. Sadly, Maria Thomas, Eliza's mother, passed away in 2015, not knowing what happened to her eldest daughter. But the other parents and loved ones of the victims continue to hope that answers can be found for their murdered girls, who have been gone for much longer than they were ever alive. Gosh. The yogurt shop has since been turned into a nail salon, and the women who work there continue to remember the lives lost that cold December night three decades ago. Every single day, they light a candle for the four girls, and regular visitors continue to visit the location to pay their respects. A plaque remains in the parking lot under an oak tree memorializing Jennifer Harbison, Sarah Harbison, Amy Ayers, 
and Eliza Thomas, reminding all those who pass by that justice has yet to be served. And that is the unsolved case of the yogurt shop murders in Austin, Texas. Wow. That is just a, like a gut-wrenchy tale. And, and it makes me think of like, if those, if their killers are, are, are still alive out there, and if they were described as being like in their 20s or 30s back then, like they're in their 50s or 60s now. Right. It's so weird because it, it, a lot of times when uh, a case takes place years and years ago, you kind of get caught up in the like, how did they look then? Mm-hmm. And it's so weird to think that there is potentially like a 50 or 60 year old person out there who has been carrying around these four murders the right. like their whole lives. And yeah. that's, uh, it's just so horrifying to think. And, and uh, that these, these perpetrators got to very well could have gone out to just live out their lives like normal and it's so unfair i really hope they didn't i hope i i don't want to say anything too negative but i hope that they whoever murdered these girls got got their their got karma. What was coming yes got what was yeah, coming karma them. justice got to them but if you know, if uh, if legal justice didn't come, I hope they got their karma justice. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, because this is still an open case, there's still a, a hotline number. So if any of our listeners have any information that could help solve this case, you can uh, call 512-472-TIPS. Um, so if anyone out there has any information, that would be wonderful. How uh, cool would that be if one of our listeners like happened to have some key little bit of of information that, you know from that night or something that could crack this open? That would be amazing. I know. I, I just hope that this case gets solved at some point. Yes, absolutely. I mean, especially when there's a little bit of DNA evidence, you would think that somewhere there's got to be a hit or um or you know like how there was wasn't there was a big case where somebody was doing some ancestry dna or something and then it turned out that they were closely related to uh somebody who was a serial killer and that helped them catch that helped the authorities catch this killer was mm-hmm. that the I, that wasn't the Golden State Killer, was it? I think it might have been. Maybe? Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. All right. Um, so I personally believe that it was the two men at the yogurt shop at closing. The mystery men. Yes. I the most sense to me, too. Yeah. I mean, everything about it, like they lingered, they weren't leaving. Um, the fact that their chairs were still down, which means the girls never had a chance to put their chairs up. Uh, the fact that there was no forced entry, the killers had to have already been inside the yogurt shop. The fact that it, there were two separate guns used. 
and then the like the front door being locked too yeah yeah so that whoever was was in there already is most likely to have been the perpetrator that like it's not like someone broke in the front door Mm -hmm. oh yeah i just wish that there was some sort of security camera footage you know? Right, I know, and this was this was early in the '90s. So even if they did have a security camera, it probably would have been that really grainy mm-hmm. stuff. But uh, I mean, honestly, they deserved to have, especially with you know, teenage like you had teenage girls closing on their own. Um, there should have been some sort of uh, I don't know better security features but you know again this was a time and place where people didn't think like something like this would happen and until something like that does happen then that's usually when protocols change is when something bad happens so it's uh it's so sad Mm -hmm. Um, once again i think the lesson learned here is to take security seriously and you know don't leave the teenage girls to close all on their own i mean even just walking out to the I, the parking lot at the end of the night if you're closing anywhere go with a buddy uh right. you know i i think of one of the things that i learned early on when i started working and closing that they would recommend that like nobody should be going out to their car by themselves. Correct. Yeah. yeah. You should always have other coworkers with you. Preferably like everybody leaves in a group together at, at close. Right. So. Yeah. Um, well, real quickly, I want to thank uh, a fabulous three-part episode um, of the podcast Unresolved. Uh, did an extremely good job um, at covering this case. Um, so it's the Austin Yogurt Shop Murders, three-part episode by Unresolved. And then also the online blog, truecrimefiles.com uh, for their article on the 1991 Austin Yogurt Shop Murders. Dang, that, I might have to listen to that. You always give really good... Uh podcast recommendations i know i know morbid is one of your favorites and now i've started listening to them (laughs) (laughs) i'm obsessed (laughs) i'm obsessed with morbid um all right everyone well i hope you're obsessed with us yes um thank you for coming today um go get some yogurt in honor of the girls yes or if you're in austin you know leave some flowers at their plaque or something yes yes All right, everyone. Well, again, thank you for listening. And until next time. Bye. Bye.